the glory of God. Amen. These lessons deserve more than the homily they're going to get today. Job's extending, extended cursing of the day and night in which he was born has been greatly shortened for our benefit. But verses 11 to 23 are intact, and we get something of the pain and suffering that would lead a person to long for death and to feel injustice that the gift of rest and end to suffering is not given to those who beg for it. Light is a repeated theme here, unwelcome light. The stillborn infant who never sees the light is lucky. Light is given to those in misery who dig for death the way others dig for gold. Why, Job asks, why is light given to one who cannot see the way whom God has fenced in? What would it feel like to have the experience that every way you tried to turn, God was there blocking you? What would it feel like to seek darkness and feel God's spotlight shining in your face, shining in your eyes. Job is describing a prison, isn't he? Walls on all sides, no escape, and that spotlight shining in your eyes constantly. Paired with the lesson from Job is the only psalm in the five books of the Psalter, the only psalm out of 150 psalms that contains no hope of redemption and release whatsoever. You might think, because we were given verses 1 through 8 of the psalm, that it picks up later, that it resolves into some conclusion where the psalmist can praise the Lord or express confidence that the day will come when these troubles will be over and there will come a time of rejoicing but Psalm 88 is consistent, relentless, really, in its complaint all the way to the end. It sees no happy ending. The rest of verse 8, which we didn't get, says, I am shut in so that I cannot escape, like Job. The psalmist asks, Lord, why have you rejected me? And the psalm ends with the words, My friend and my neighbor you have put away from me, and darkness is my only companion. My friend Catherine Green McCrate chose that last phrase, Darkness is my only companion, as the title of the book she wrote, chronicling her experience of the extended depression she felt for years. No hope, no way out. She could not see the way she felt fenced in. And she is by no means alone. I'm grateful to God that this psalm is in our Bible and in our prayer book, because it is important for people who feel utterly alone to know that they are not alone, that this feeling of being trapped has happened to other people, 
and also that it is possible to get out of it alive, that suicide is not the only option. This is especially important for our young people who haven't had as much life experience. Sometimes they conclude that what they are feeling is all there is, but that isn't true. I think I can see why the Psalms chosen for our worship on Sunday mornings tend to be upbeat and joyful, but those of us who are called to give pastoral care to congregations will also need to know about the Psalms of lament and anger and frustration. They are important pastoral resources. Doctors of the soul may sometimes want to say, take two Psalms and call me in the morning. <laughs> My main issue with praise music is that it doesn't play all the notes. Yes, we need to be able to express our joy and our victories, and it does that well. And we also need to hear and sing the minor keys, the discordant tones, the phrases that don't quite resolve. We need at least some music that goes with tears and sighs and wanting to scream or wanting to kill. James and John thought Jesus should empower them to do the Elijah trick of calling down fire from heaven to consume the people who disagreed with them. These stupid Samaritans who read the wrong Bible and had built their temple to God on the wrong mountain, Mount Gerizim. The Israelites had actually destroyed that temple several generations ago and the Samaritans had not forgotten it. And now they were refusing to offer hospitality to Jesus and his disciples because they were headed for Jerusalem, which we all know is on the right mountain, Mount Zion. So let's nuke them. But Jesus turns to James and John with a rebuke, and he leads them away. They go on to another village and stay there. As I wondered why these other lessons were joined to this gospel, I was reminded of some advice Tilden Edwards, a well-known Anglican Episcopal spiritual director, local, who founded Shalem, used to give us when we were trying to meditate or pray and negative feelings or just unwanted trivial ideas would invade our thoughts. Tilden counseled us not to attack these thoughts or feelings as if they were enemies, but to recognize them and to gently let them go, to invite them to leave whenever they were ready. The more we can focus on God's love and mercy, the more we attend to our desire to serve God, the more we can rest in the knowledge that God is God and we are not God, the less these old friends can distract us. I think the same thing is true of spiritual pain and depression. And by the way, clergy are not immune to these things. They can grow as a result of our attention to them. 
There's a Maori parable about the sage who taught that inside every person live two wolves, one that is friendly and affectionate like a puppy, the other that is savage and death-dealing. But, asked a student, which wolf will survive and win? The one that you feed, said the sage. We're coming up to St. Francis Day, and you will remember the story about Francis and the wolf. The townspeople were ready with pitchforks and fire, like James and John. But Francis and the wolf sat down and talked it out, and they became friends. Our feelings of despair or anger or whatever can also be befriended usually with the help of others who have experience with these things, then we ourselves will be better able to recognize people who are living a Psalm 88 experience and feeling like Job, that there is no way of escape. We have good news for them, not cheap grace, not flowery wallpaper or smiley faces, but the real thing, the God who knows all about the cross and who lived to tell about new life, resurrection life beyond the shadow of death.